Isn't it cool to listen to a podcast that doesn't mention audible.com? There's what, like 12 of us? And the reason why the BHP is able to do that, and the reason why it's able to remain free and independent, is because of member support. The truth of it is, this show is a niche show. I'll never be big like Mark Marin, Ira Glass, or Josh and Chuck. That's because when I started this show, I decided I wanted to tell you a story, but I also wanted to bring you information that you can't find anywhere else. And the dirty little secret of history podcasting is that there's a great deal more crowd appeal in telling people stories they already know. If I wanted this show to have hundreds of thousands of listeners, all I would need to do is talk about 1066 and the Tudors, and I'd be set. But as we've discovered together, there's so much more to British history than our horniest and probably fattest king. And I very much want to tell the full story, including all the coolest bits that strangely get ignored. Like, you know, the common people. And women. Not to mention that we've now spent two years talking about the period of history that most accounts of British history entirely skip over. As if there was nothing that occurred between the Roman occupation and the arrival of William the Conqueror. And my guess is the reason that happens is because the best way to gain a large audience is to talk about Roman emperors and battles, and Norman kings and battles. But doing that means skipping over the foundry that created modern British culture. And where's the fun in that? But the result of focusing upon that foundry is that the BHP is a niche show, with a much smaller listener base than the heavyweights. But that's okay, because I'm not doing this to become famous. I just love this material and love to tell you about it. However, I also want to keep the lights on, and because of the small scope of the community, I really do rely on member support. The thing is that getting this information is actually rather difficult and shockingly expensive. Academic journals, scholarly books, all that kind of stuff, these sources are not priced to move. They know they only have a small group of people who are willing to buy them, so they price gouge the hell out of us. And weirdly, it's now become oddly normal in my life to spend about 150 bucks on a book that's less than 200 pages. And don't even get me started on the pricing schemes for articles. The point is, though, that I adore what I do, but I really do need your help so I can keep doing it. I know there's a small, scrappy band of us, and I also know that money is tight these days, and that's why I've set the price of membership to something that most of us can afford. Less than $5 a month, which is about what most of us pay for a latte. Well, for those of us who do drink lattes, for my UK listeners, it's less than you would pay for a decent pint. And for that, you're getting hours of entertainment every month, and extra episodes on the members' feed. And as for those members' episodes, my co-producer and I have been working on storyboarding this project out, and we're thinking that the members-only episodes would be a great place for in-depth analysis. Basically, a forest view of things. So the hope is that going forward, as we talk about kings and cultural shifts on the main show, with an attention to the timeline, on the members' episodes, we'll be compiling the big-picture shifts into single-topic episodes, much like we did with our Women in Mercia episodes where we took a look at the changing attitudes towards women in leadership roles in that most bloody of Midland kingdoms. That way, members can get the benefit of the whole story, but will also hopefully have a big picture account of what's going on. Sort of like a study aid. Anyway, those episodes are largely just a thank you for those of you willing to chip in and enable us to keep the show free, independent, and most importantly, continuing into the future. We're building something significant here. 
we're telling the story of our island in a way that we haven't seen anywhere else, combining great man, cultural aspects, and even geography into a single narrative. And it's available to anyone who can get online. And making the latest academic research on British history available is why I spend the money to get access to sources. We're bringing our history out of the dusty archives and out into the world where we can all discuss and learn from it. That's something we should all be proud of, and I couldn't do it without your help. So if you're already a member, thank you so much for being a part of this. And if you aren't a member, please consider going over to the BritishHistoryPodcast.com and becoming part of the community. Thank you. And in particular, thank you to Michelle, Jennifer, and Claudia for contributing already. And members, make sure you check your email and spam folders because the password for the members feed changed the other day. You know, it's been a while since I've talked at length about membership. It kind of feels weird, so let's get on with the show. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 135, A Reshuffling of Power. And today, we're going to cover the eventful years of 675 to 678. And our main characters will be King Wolf Hera of Mercia, son of Penda and tough guy with a bloody lip. King Egfrith of Northumbria, son of Oswiu and guy who bloodied Wolf Hera's lip. And Bishop Wilfrid, the Northumbrian bishop who was a key player in converting Northumbria to Roman Catholicism and also a key player in keeping King Egfrith childless. A remarkably stupid move for someone who was reported to be intelligent. But before we get to our title characters, we're going to start with King Esquina of Wessex. He was the new king of Wessex who had a dubious lineage and who replaced Queen Sakespeare in what appears to have been a coup. Well, following Wolf Hera's loss to Egfrith, which we talked about last week, things in the south got a little destabilized. And Mercia, which was dominant in the south, probably started to look a lot weaker. And don't forget that while Northumbria was Mercia's favorite target for war, Wessex was a close second. And the West Saxons and their new king, Esquina, were probably getting a bit annoyed with their Midland neighbors. After all, they had lost lands along their northern borders to the Mercians. And then King Wolf Hera of Mercia marched in and took over their neighbors to the east and installed a puppet king. And then the Isle of Wight followed suit. The West Saxons probably felt beset upon all sides. And then their king died, and things sort of fell apart. So yeah, the new king Esquina probably had every reason to want to establish himself as a powerful leader at this point. The kingdom was on a downward trajectory, and he probably wanted to turn that around, and Mercia might have actually appeared vulnerable at this point. And what better way to increase his worth and standing than to retake some of his lost lands? So yeah, Wessex had reason to fight. Conversely, in Mercia, Wolf Hera had just been given the business by Egfrith. It was, ugh, it was embarrassing. And so he probably had a great need to show his thanes, supporters, and most importantly, his subject kings, that he was not a weak king. But rather, he was a king in the model of his father, King Penda. Traveling to the south and taking further West Saxon lands would go a long way in repairing his waning stature especially if the West Saxons were starting to buck against his overlordship, which they very well might have been doing under the leadership of King Esquina. 
So conflict between the two kingdoms was probably inevitable. And in 675, at Beden Hefde, the armies met. And our bird-watching scribes tell us nothing about the battle. They don't even tell us who won. How on earth do you leave something like that out? Now, on the one hand, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle has a heavy pro-Wessex bias, so maybe the reason why the outcome was left out was because the West Saxons were, to use an academic term, spanked, and the chroniclers didn't want to write about that. However, we aren't given any indication of a serious loss by the West Saxons. For example, we aren't told that there was a shift in leadership in Wessex, or any tributes being paid, nor are we told of any lands that were seized by the Mercians. So that makes me wonder if the reason why we don't hear of a winner is because there wasn't one. It doesn't look like following that battle, anything really changed. Maybe the fight was a bit like that ill-fated fight where Chalin of Wessex fought, and the Chronicle claims he had a victory, but he failed to take any lands, he retreated back to Wessex, and soon thereafter found himself deposed. Maybe something like that happened, where the warbands were badly bloodied, but nothing was really accomplished, other than, you know, angering your warbands. And I suspect that might have been exactly what happened, because we're told that later that same year, King Wolf Hera of Mercia died. And again, we aren't told how or why. But I bet there were some lovely puffins or something to look at. Get it together, scribes. Anyway, while we don't know how Wolf Hera died, and we don't know the outcome of the battle against the West Saxons, one thing is clear. Mercia was weakened. Terribly. In fact, the steady advance that Mercia had against the West Saxons had halted entirely. Until 675, the Mercians were devouring West Saxon lands with boundless enthusiasm. But now, now they had completely stopped. The West Saxon borders were holding strong. That battle must have been pretty awful. And Mercia didn't just have an issue with Wessex. King Sabi of the East Saxons no longer appears to have recognized Mercia as his overlord. Essex was breaking away. Oh yeah, Mercia was in trouble. And into this mess stepped the new king, Aethelred son of Penda, and brother of Wolf Hera. In less than a year, his brother had died, and his kingdom had gone from possibly the most powerful kingdom in Britain to one that was on the verge of collapse and surrounded by enemies. Total nightmare, right? But what to do? Well, it looks like he might have tried to bolster his position by marrying Princess Osthrith, who is the daughter of Oswiu. And I'm kind of torn on that decision. On the one hand, it makes sense to want to try and heal the wound between Northumbria and Mercia. After all, the leading cause of death for Mercian nobility appears to have been the Northumbrians. Think about it. King Aethelred's father and two of his brothers had died thanks to the Northumbrians. So maybe becoming family might help prolong his life a little. And it's not clear whether or not Northumbria was exercising overlordship over Mercia following their victory in the previous year. But if they were, he might not have had much of a say in the matter. Egfrith might have mandated the marriage. So, on the one hand, the marriage does make a certain amount of sense. But on the other hand, he was inviting the line of Ida into his own house. Specifically, he was inviting a daughter of Oswiu. 
And do you remember what happened to the last Mercian king who married a daughter of Oswiu? I'm sure Aethelred did, since it was his brother, King Peta. And King Peta was murdered. On Easter, of all things. So, in addition to the bad blood between the two kingdoms, there must have been a certain level of apprehension in the royal couple's bed. But, given the tenuous position Mercia was in, a political marriage to secure peace along the northern border was probably necessary. And actually, that same sense of danger and instability might be why we read of King Aethelred cozying up with the church. We're told that he confirmed that not only will all the grants of property to the church made by his brothers, Kings Peta and Wolfhera, be allowed to stand, but so will the grants made by his sisters, Kinneburga and Kinneswitha. And that's important, because at this point in Anglo-Saxon history, all the lands were held by the king, and he could choose to withdraw them at any point. Meaning that the lands the church held, because of gifts from prior Mercian kings, were not guaranteed to continue to be theirs. But King Aethelred had chosen to regrant those lands, which would have probably pleased the clergy greatly. And then he added to them, granting Midhampstead, including Bredon, Reppings, Cadney, Swineshead, Hanbury, Lodeshall, Scuffinall, Cosford, Stratford, Wattleburn, Lushgard, Ethelhoon Island, and Bardney. So quite a lot. And then Aethelred decided to really crank it up to 11. And he said that those lands would be held by the church in perpetuity. Okay, well, he didn't really use those words. He wasn't a lawyer. What he said was that if any of his successors took anything from those lands, or the land itself, that that person would be cursed by the Pope, by all the bishops, by all the witnesses, including Bishop Wilfred and Archbishop Theodorus of Tarsus, and by all Christian folk. That is a serious curse. So those lands were essentially permanently in the hands of the church now. And here's my favorite part. In keeping with Mercia's tradition of having powerful queens, the charter was confirmed by Queen Osthrith as well. So, yeah, things were tough for Mercia, but in about the space of a year, King Aethelred had moved to secure his northern border and also his religious flank. So all in all, it was a kind of eventful year for Mercia. Now, in the following year, there was a three-month comet that got everyone's attention. Granted, in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, it was actually dated to 678, not 676. But that very well could have been an error, or they might have even intentionally shifted time in order to emphasize the religious aspects of what was going on in 678. But whatever the case, it looks like the dating was wrong because astronomers believe that the comet would have actually been visible in 676. So, big comet in 676, and meanwhile, King Aethelred was still keeping himself very busy, attempting to secure his border territories. And Mercia had quite a lot of border territories. And its rivals might have been eager to take advantage of the delicate position the Midland Kingdom had found itself in. For example, it's possible that Kent was looking into annexing Surrey. The reason we think that is because we're told that on that same year, King Aethelred marched into Kent and utterly ransacked Rochester. Honestly, he was so merciless in his attack that we have accounts from two successive bishops following that attack who had given up their positions because they lacked funds. He seems to have taken everything that wasn't nailed down. And here we get a glimpse of how savage Anglo-Saxon politics could be. 
and King Aethelred very well might have been giving his neighboring kingdoms an object lesson in what happens when Mercia is underestimated. Sure, they had lost the battle to Egfrith, and the fight with Aesquina didn't seem to have gone all that well. But Aethelred was probably showing both his own warbands as well as his rivals that he was still a son of Penda, and that he was quite capable of raining complete destruction down upon his enemies. Mercia was coming back. And actually, after this episode, it might be a good time to have a re-listen to the Staffordshire Horde episodes. Or even better, go visit the collections at the Potteries Museum and the Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery. Because based upon the dating of the Horde, it's possible that the finds could have been the property of King Aethelred, or his brother, King Wolf Hera. And that's pretty neat if you ask me. Okay, what else was going on in 676? Well, down in Wessex, Aesquina, the same West Saxon king who appears to have given Wolf Hera some trouble, had died and was replaced by Kentwina, who is largely an unknown king and who might have been a pagan who later converted to Christianity. Anyway, all we're really told about this king is that he later drove the Britons into the sea in 682. But how and why and where? Well, that's not recorded. Frankly, Things in Wessex are still getting sorted out, and they really did fall apart after Chenwall died. And it's going to take quite a while before they can get fully reorganized. So that's basically what's going on in Wessex. Anyway, that was about it for 676, and things really started to pick up again two years later, in 678. And that's because Bishop Wilfred had been pretty busy, and not just with getting involved in the king's marital issues. While there was all this political intrigue, marriage, and royal shuffling of power, Wilfred had been working to install new bishoprics in the north, and naturally, he was stocking them with people from his own community and of a like mind. Now, because we don't have any diaries, we don't know what Egfrith thought of Wilfred, but his feelings were probably pretty complex. The king was probably quite familiar with Wilfred, since they were essentially raised in the same household when they were younger, except, of course, during the bit where Egfrith was held as a hostage by the Mercians. But by and large, they were in the same household, so you can't help but wonder if there was some level of connection between the two men, despite Wilfred's intervention on behalf of Queen Aethelthrith. Or maybe Egfrith liked Wilfred about as much as his father did, meaning not at all. But regardless of the king's feelings... Wilfred was busy doing what a bishop does. He was spreading his religion. And he was also heading up the absolutely massive bishopric of York. And I don't know if he started this way, but by this point in his life, he was definitely getting fancy, and we're told that he was dressing up his followers in clothing fit for royalty. And he was also getting involved in Merovingian politics, and was, of course, ruthlessly pursuing any vestiges of the old Celtic church in Northumbria. To say that Wilfred was powerful would be an understatement. And it looks like that power went a bit to his head because he and Egfrith started to run into conflict. Conflict that was probably not helped by the fact that Abbas Hilda of Whitby, one of his rivals, and also one of the figures from the Synod of Whitby, really did not like Wilfred. And it's thought that she was probably working pretty hard to undermine his growing power base. And meanwhile, Egfrith might still have been a bit grouchy about Wilfred's interference in his marriage. So things were already pretty tense between the two men. 
And when Egfrith started to reorganize the workings of the Northern Church on his own, it looks like Wilfred reacted rather, well, rather passionately. And so he was turfed out of Northumbria. Now granted, Bishop Wilfred was a heavyweight. In fact, he even had his own armed retinue, which sounds a bit like a warband to me. Which even King Egfrith's new queen, your member, thought was equal to that of a king's retinue. So Wilfred was serious business. But then again, Egfrith was a king on the line of Ida. Do you really want to mess with that? Well, apparently Wilfred did, but it didn't work out because he was summarily evicted from Northumbria. And after his expulsion, he and other men of the cloth were replaced by church leaders who were more acceptable to Archbishop Theodore of Tarsus. King Egfrith then placed Bassa as the Bishop of Deira, Eta as the Bishop of Bernicia, and Aedhed as the Bishop of Lindsay. So Wilfred's enormous diocese was being broken up. We can't say for certain what Egfrith's motivations were, but given the fact that Wilfred had what amounted to an army operating within Northumbria, well, that must have been on the king's mind. And chances are, he didn't want that to ever happen again. Additionally, pleasing the Archbishop of Canterbury by placing men that Tarsus approved of was a pretty smart move, since it gave him the support he needed to establish further bishoprics in the northern territories that he was trying to bring under his own umbrella. But there's something else to note here. I don't think that this was simple church politics, nor do I think that this was centered around Egfrith's attempt to curry favor with Canterbury. I think this was more serious than that, and also a great deal more personal. And the reason I say that is that Wilfred, upon being roughly encouraged to pursue a new career path, chose to do something else. He chose to do something that no other Englishman had done before. He decided to appeal to the Pope. And consider what we're talking about here. Bishop Wilfred, despite being from one of the most powerful kingdoms in Britain, was still from what basically amounted to a backwater territory. And he was traveling through Gaul and into the center of Christendom, into Rome itself, the city that the West revolved around for centuries, the ancient home of Augustus. And he was going there to meet with St. Peter's successor, the highest point of authority outside of God himself, essentially to tattle on King Egfrith. But that's how serious these matters were for Wilfred. And he needed help. So he was seeking out the highest authority in the Western world in order to get it. You can almost imagine Bishop Wilfred in old St. Peter's Basilica, all too aware that he was standing in the building that Emperor Constantine himself had commissioned, built right over the place where St. Peter had been buried. And then Pope Agatho, the new Pope, probably aided by an entourage of cardinals and other clergy, entered the holy building. The wealth and power of Northumbria, the majesty even of King Oswiu, who Wilfred fearlessly stared down all those years ago, probably were pale in comparison to the majesty of the Pope. I would imagine that Wilfred all of a sudden became all too aware of how small and insignificant his life and even his home was. But if he was spooked, we aren't given any indication of it, because we're told that he made his appeal to the Holy See, and that Pope Agatho appears to have been impressed and decided that Wilfred should be restored, that Hexham and Ripon, which had been affected by Egfrith's reorganization, would be now under direct papal supervision, 
and he gave Wilfrid the right to replace any clergy that he desired. The Pope also limited the number of dioceses in England to 12. Now, you can imagine that Wilfrid was pretty happy about this. And so, confident in his cause, he traveled back and gave Egfrith the papal decree. The king read it, and then he imprisoned Wilfrid. But apparently, even his presence in the dungeons was annoying Egfrith, because it wasn't too long before the northern king chucked Wilfred out of the kingdom entirely. I'm stunned by this, and it's quite possibly my favorite part of Wilfred's story. Consider how angry Egfrith must have been with Wilfred to completely disregard the Pope. He could end up excommunicated, which would have isolated him from all other Christians and would have raised the serious risk that his kingdom would be invaded for the express purpose of deposing him. Refusing Rome was not a minor act. But apparently, letting Wilfred back into Northumbria was the hill that Egfrith was ready to die on. Pope or no Pope, Wilfred was not coming home. I've been angry at people in my life, but I have never been that angry. But Wilfred's story isn't quite done yet. But this episode is. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, pretty much everything. And you can find links to all of that at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Okay, thanks for listening.